Welcome to Adopting Zero Trust, an independent podcast that dives into the world of zero trust and tells the story of people who are adopting it. Throughout our series, we'll investigate why zero trust is becoming a critical concept for cybersecurity. Our hosts, Elliot Volkman and Neil Dennis, will have transparent and open conversations with the people driving modern security approaches forward while leaving vendor hype behind. It's time to remove implicit trust and buzzwords and get to the root of the movement. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Adopting Zero Trust, or AZT. Today, we have a fantastic guest, which will cover probably one of the most critical aspects of Zero Trust, IAM, or Identity and Access Management. So our guest doesn't just have experience with IAM, and I'll let her kind of share that specific background element. But before we hand it off over to Christine, um, I do just want to give a little bit of a heads up. So in a couple of weeks, there is the Texas Cyber Summit, and Neil doesn't like to shout out his own stuff, but he is one of the organizers or co-organizers there. So please definitely check out that event. He'll be there on site. I'm also sending along some stickers for him to hand out for the show. So if you see him, make sure you get some stickers and swag out of him. That being said, I wanted to hand this over to Christine, Miss Christine Owen, who not again was just focused on I am and zero trust, but is a, I don't know if the best way to say is, is a recovering attorney? Is that the right way to approach it? Yes. I definitely consider myself a recovering attorney. It was a very horrible, addictive thing I did to myself where I went into a lot of debt for it. And then I realized I woke up one day and thought, oh, this wasn't a great idea for me. So then I ended up in something that was just as painful at times, which is I worked for the federal government. I consulted with the federal government on IAM policies and tried to push these along in their IAM journeys. Now I actually, I do a couple of things. I'm a director at Guidehouse, which is a management consulting firm where I get to do enterprise IAM solutions for both federal and commercial clients, which is a lot of fun. And then on top of that, I get to help some federal agencies get to that zero trust requirement in the EO 14028. So both are really fun on the commercial side, even if we don't call it zero trust. Obviously, zero trust principles are put in when we're working on IAM and or a cyber a cybersecurity solution. So that's that's me in a nutshell. Love it. So I especially like that you were straight up front that you are essentially doing zero trust without calling it zero trust. And that seems to be a pretty common theme that we hear from our guests and just in general. But what are some of the ways that you're positioning that or following zero trust principles without actually focusing on zero trust? Well, if you're, it depends. So on, on clients where, let's see, that's a good question. Cause it's really hard to say that. Unfortunately, I like just throw it over people's face. Like <laughs> I do zero trust, but I think zero, but zero trust is really just identity plus, you know, a couple other things, right? So mm -hmm. it's micro segmenting, logging, you know, making sure, well, to me, encryption still falls under zero trust. I think micro segmentation still falls under zero trust. So I don't, there's not a lot that I don't put under identity and zero trust that, but logging, I think. Um, but yeah, I think I, what, 
ends up happening is if I have a, if I'm talking to a federal client, zero trust absolutely is the forefront of their mind because they have lots of requirements that it specifically call out zero trust. If I'm talking to a commercial client, I really just talk about the identity centric principles of zero trust. So making sure that you have common IDP, you don't have multiple IDPs all over the place, making sure that IDP allows for single sign on so that you can get into all of your applications and that they're kind of segmented off if you can. Making sure that users come in as general users and then we can give them extra privileges if they need to be privileged users or even make them go through another solution if it's really critical and the and it'll cause pain to the company. Those are things that I, to me, those principles are exactly the same regardless of what you talk about. When I read, so NIST 800-207, yeah, are the zero trust principles essentially. So this mm -hmm. is how you get to zero trust architecture. When I read that, I was like, oh, these are all the greatest things that we've had forever that they finally put into one document. Oh, thank <laughs> God. Yeah. And, and, and it ended up, I was talking to some of my clients and they didn't understand all of the principles in there because that, for example, attribute based access control is a really hard one to understand. If you hadn't read the Bohemoth 150 page, you know, NIST book or NIST special publication, it's not something that kind of is intuitive for people. Contextual authentication seems very foreign, especially for those people who don't even use multi-factor authentication. So it's adding all of those things together is a lot of fun, I think. Yeah. So quick curiosity question then on all yeah. that fun stuff. So we talk about some of the transitionings and the consolidations, like you mentioned, from a, a private industry perspective, you know, we have a lot of companies over the last 10, 15 years that have made a living doing this access management control stuff through SAML, pick a flavor and variations thereof. Have you seen any good market shifts with some of those primary providers to produce constructs around the zero trust mentality? Or given the fact that inherently some of that's already baked in, but have you seen them purposely trying to promote and or grow that continuity and structure within those types of products perhaps? So when you say they, are you talking about the vendors that are selling to the companies or just the companies in the industry? I am, I am. So the those vendors? third party providers doing identity access management control stuff. Well, so I think all of them, any product that uh, like even tangentially touches cybersecurity or any kind of principle, they claim they do zero trust, which is quite amazing to me because <laughs> they don't all do zero trust. So I absolutely see that. Back to the SAML question, I have actually seen, I'm thinking that because you said SAML, I'm thinking obviously IDPs. I've seen a lot of shifts recently. I feel like one, I think that, um, WebAuthn is really gaining in industry for sure. I've seen major companies adopt WebAuthn to the point where they didn't, they kind of skipped a couple steps and went straight to WebAuthn, which kind of shocked me, but they decided to go a little longer and then just jump right in. Target is one of those companies that did that. There's a couple other major Fortune 500 companies who have also done that. And I think that's really good, right? Because that gets us to phishing resistant MFA pretty quickly. Back, backing up a little bit within the IDP industry, I actually think that all of them, have, all the vendors that I can think of have been kind of iterating very quickly and really doing a good job of seeing what the security threats are out there and trying to shore up their identity providers to make sure that they aren't the next one that has that golden ticket, for example. They don't <laughs> want to be the one that has that vulnerability. So they have been working really hard to make sure that it's in there. 
The one interesting thing though, with that being said, you know, you can have a great IDP, but if you don't set it up properly, it doesn't really matter. And so one of the things that I've learned recently is that I was talking to some of my friends at CISA and I found out that less than 20% of, I probably shouldn't say this, but less than 20% of, of American companies actually don't use MFA right? Internally, they just don't use it. And so that's really scary. And, you know, we need to go out there and help them with that. We need to get them using MFA at a minimum, preferably fishing resistant and making sure that they start to use a good IDP that will help them re make a frictionless way for their general users to get into their application. So you brought up a really good term that nobody's brought up on this yet, and it's fishing resistant. I mean, we have constructs of what that might be, but can you kind of expound upon what you mean when you talk about that? Because that, that obviously is really the number one threat to any organization any given day, aside from just unpatched stuff. But inbox, inbox is always the least difficult path of compromise in any exploit path. So phishing resistant, I kind of want to, we could expound upon that and kind of get your definition of what that includes mentality wise. Sure. I mean, I'll even list what they are because it's such a small handful. So it's a, it's PKI certs are phishing resistant and then I'll go back and say why. And then FIDO tokens are phishing resistant. And then the last one are, is WebAuthn, which if you like Starbucks as much as I do, you use WebAuthn regularly when you're reloading your card on your, on the app because you use a fingerprint, right? So that's WebAuthn. So moving backwards to talk about why that's phishing resistant and everything else, literally everything else. SMS, no. Getting an email, no. Any of those one-time <laughs> verification codes, absolutely not. Username, password, just kill me now. Like I'll walk away. It's fine. So all of those things are <laughs> not phishing resistant or because a bad actor can send you a really good fake um, email to try to get something from you. So for example, if you're using, so some authenticators on your phone, they can send you a push notification. If a bad actor gets your username and password, which they probably already have it because you're probably reusing something and it's on the dark web and they've already bought it because it's in a package of all the other, you know, millions that you usually get a couple million at a time that you get to try out. So they probably already have it. And then if they decide, oh, their, their second factor is something that's just a push, well, that's easy. So they push it to your phone. A lot of people, just don't, they, they like, they're going to push it to, to dismiss it off of their phone. So automatically that's not fishing resistant. The next one is if they, if you get an email that says, Hey, like I've got this deal for you, go in and sign in with your credentials and you sign in and it ends up, it's not a deal. It's well, it's a deal for them because they got it <laughs> off of you for free, but it's not a deal for you. It's a bad actor trying to get your, your username, password to some sort of thing. That's phishing. The other one, phishing, non-phishing resistant. The last one is a man in the middle attack. So essentially they can pick up the signal in between by having you try to say, put in a one-time passcode into a website. They'll pick that up and then they'll take it and reuse it immediately to get into your account, then they might change your passwords or take your money or whatever they decide to do that day. So that's the difference. And again, there's not very many on the market in industry today that is phishing resistant. It's a very small handful. So back to IDPs, that's why IDPs matter, right? You need to make sure if you're out there looking for a new IDP, you need to make sure that they have 
all of the fishing resistant factors available to them so that you can use those and, you know, move forward in your life. Yeah, I like, I've been a long time fan of just PK, PKIs or PGP, some kind of policy procedure that way. I used to do a lot of independent research and other stuff that could or could not get me in hot water with some people way further east. And mm -hmm. all the people we worked with, we'd never work without any with anyone unless we had some kind of key exchange for email going on at the very least. And even that took a lot of implicit trust sometimes to get started because that network of people... Yeah, it's amazing to me the little things that we could do, at least from a corporation perspective, to keep your CEO from, you know, texting you and asking you to email him for iTunes gift cards or yeah. something else. Or tax season comes around, HR departments always get hammered with all those unsolicited three-letter board member people saying, hey, send me the latest on social security numbers and tax bracket crap for my employee base, please. But yeah, something as simplistic as just having a simple key exchange really can keep a lot of that from happening because then it got the right email system. It identifies and say, hey, this actually isn't from your CEO. Maybe you should think twice. Yeah. yeah, but that, I mean, if we have, if we have so many companies out there not even using MFA, key exchange is yeah. a little, a bridge too far. Let's be honest. Yeah. We have to take small steps to get there. Totally agree though. Key exchanges are really important, but also seeing people in the field, they don't. <laughs> like things like that as much as we do. I agree with you on that one. I'm an extremist. I used to be so bad that I wouldn't exchange keys with someone unless I physically met them or at least had physically met them before. And I could get on before video conferencing was a big thing. You know, I could at least get on there and have them do a quick chat on like Skype. I'm like, oh, okay, it's still you. Let me just put it here in, in, in the Skype channel and then we're good to go. No, it's interesting. So on the, on the note of some of these other technology stuff, you know, moving the ball forward a little bit, you know, you mentioned your disdain for passwords. We've talked about this actually on a, one or two other prior episodes about passwordless security environment and where that's kind of going. And mm -hmm. what's your take on that from, uh, I know mine, I know that once it's there, it doesn't matter how good it is. We're always going to find ways to circumvent it. But what's your idea of, or take on that whole biometric fingerprinting, keyboard pattern recognition stuff that some of these organizations are looking to do? Yeah. All right. So I'm back, I want to back up. I feel like I'm going to peel that layer of onions that you just threw at me. So the first Sorry. one is, no, it's okay. So the first one is your take is, it sounds like is what does it matter? They're going to figure out how to circumvent it. I totally agree. I no, I think it's true. So it, the way that I see a defensive cyber is my job is to be one step ahead of the bad guys, which means I always have to learn and continue to move the ball forward, which also means that any it doesn't matter what the organization is they can't say oh i like for example zero trust i got all the zero trust principles in i'm in it mission accomplished i'm good no you're never you always have to iterate your defenses and shore them up and move forward because there you don't know what's coming at you generally on december 24th of every year so yes. i totally agree with you on all of that like it you can't say good we're good all right so that's number one Number two, my view on passwords quite simply is I literally cannot remember them. And so I hate them so much. I mean, they're also a security risk, but I hate them more because I have to use them because I'm a, you know, I'm a consumer and I hate using them. And, you know, FIDO standards are not as ubiquitous right now for consumers and it makes sense. So 
there we are for that. But how do you get away from passwords? I'm going to go with more internal and less external, though I can think through how to like external users would be similar, but not as not as complex. But internal for internal general users, what I would use, I do like PKA certificates. Honestly, I think that they are the strongest. I, why hate on something that works so well, but people hate on them. Using a phishing resistant token or web authn, like those would also be acceptable for the general user coming in. So that's one. But then on top of that, I would add to that. I like to think of, I like to say, okay, well here, it's like a flower arrangement. You take your first flower and then you start arranging around it. So the, so that's your first easy one, right? That's simple. Then you go on, what do you get next? So you definitely need things like an IP address, but to add to that general users, what their profile looks like. But an IP address isn't really good enough because you can easily spoof an IP address. You can have someone coming in from a country that we don't want them coming in, but they're actually, but it looks like they're coming in from the US. That's an easy one to spoof, but adding the IP address is still not a horrible thing to do, especially if they tend to have static IP addresses coming in because you're going to use that as your past user history. So you're going to see like what IP address does this person come in on daily? Is it normally the same one? If it's not, and it's like at a different time than you know, maybe I'm going to raise red flags. So then the next time is what time is this user coming in? Mostly for general users, they tend to ha habitually enter their network around the same time if you're an internal user. So if you're entering in at 2 a.m. on a Saturday, but you really only work Monday through Fridays, there's likely something wrong. And then on top of that, I will add in probably, again, if this is an internal user, I would add in some sort of watermark or certificate on the device because adding additional device level signals really helps because generally, not all the time, but generally we issue devices to our employees and then we know exactly what that device should look like. If you want to go even fancier, you could add in whatever the security posture on the device is. So you don't want a, a non-clean device on your network, but whatever, not a lot of people can do that right now. So it's fine for, and then the last piece, I think the idea of using keyboards and that type of biometric or a fingerprint, which I don't really fingerprints, like a biometric for through web standard shore. But if you're just doing it willy nilly, then because there's certain requirements when you do it through web of through Fido. But if you're going to use the keyboard, like how quickly you're typing, it's actually quite interesting. They have said that it's kind of like a fingerprint that you can see what it, if it's really hard to like take what someone does and do it over again. But then the problem is if something happens to that person, like they have a stroke or whatever, their entire behavior totally changes. But I guess the same thing, if you burn your finger, same thing, you'll lose your <laughs> fingerprint. So it's a, it's an issue we have, but I think the way that I like to do this, and again, this is from my cyber background, I prefer to take as many layers of, of like different things that we can get a hold of to build that whole user profile. And then every time that user comes in, see how many matches that user has to what we think that profile should be. And then if it's less than there's a risk score attached to it. So if it's less than half, then, whoa, maybe that person shouldn't come in to our network, or maybe they should be flagged immediately to go talk to this, to have the sock look into it or something like that. Under no circumstances though, if you're going to do all of that, I wouldn't say 
oh, you flag it. And then someone looks at it five days later. That's not worth it at that point. <laughs> and you definitely need the right security model to respond to the nose. Exactly. I think those are great points. You know, it's something I think people are starting to comprehend more and more the last few years, especially courtesy of COVID is that security needs to be to your point, like an onion or a floral arrangement. There needs to be layers behind it, security and depth, right? So in the military, whether it's physical or digital, we always talk about security and depth. And when we go set up a shop somewhere, patrol base, whatever, there's security and depth to, you know, for everybody to be doing the right things. And cybersecurity, same thing needs to happen. And I think the metrics piece that you're talking about, I love this because there's another company I'm working with that's doing some document access control things. I, you know, if I send you a PDF, how do I know when you send it to someone else that you shouldn't have sent it to kind of thing? Oh, yeah. I think we might be talking to the same company. I know a company that does that too. I love that. I love that idea, by the way. I do too. Um, especially yeah. so in the ISAC ISAC community where I spend most of my days, we broker in sensitive data all the time. And when you send the email out or you go through a portal, you know, you need to be able to, you tell people TLP, pick a flavor, you know, if it's red or amber strict now with the new one, don't share outside of this little group of 10 people. Well, once they log in, it's really the honor system, right? So the company doing stuff like that, but their model is built like what you're talking about, where they can still manage things offline indirectly. So if the server that's supposed to provide the security pairings isn't directly available, the document itself has that implicit fingerprint built into it for what it's expecting. And then you can set varying levels based off of the risks you're willing to expose yourself to for that document access. So if it's a, if it's a lower echelon document, yeah, you know, at the end of the day, if someone accesses this from Germany, when I know his fingerprint says he's actually from, you know, Texas, but yet he still has the password and he still has a MacBook labeled X, Y, and Z. Cool. This is a lower threshold risk. So I, I like that because to your point, if you can build some kind of model around it, and you can build a scoring mechanism around it, then you can build a lot more automation around it, both for what you're alerting on, as well as what your thresholds of exposure can be for the varying degrees of access that you set apart. And you know, we talk about zero trust where everything should be completely expunged from each other and there needs to be some kind of secured pathways. But in reality, there's gotta be echelons to all of that, right? In some fashion or another. Yeah. And so I like if I am a listener and I'm thinking that sounds really hard, where is that one product that does all this? So there's not one product that does all this. So that's problem number one. You have to find people who know all the products that can do all this. But the second thing is that like it for the vendors out there who might be listening, you know, the lot we have such great depth of information from logging for all of the things that we do within a day on our computers. And so it just makes sense for this to be the thing that's easy. I mean, and make sure that we get this in the hands of companies and other organizations that really need this because I mean, I know how to do it. I've built it. It's definitely something that you can do, but you can't do it with one product, which I get. This is just how it works. But I think that most people out there think, Either that one product can do all of this. No, they can't. Or that that there's never going to be an easy way to connect it, the dots because we're also used to pre-pandemic. I, I would say like the from the pandemic moving forward, technology has advanced significantly, especially cybersecurity technology. And pre-pandemic, we would have had to have a ton of engineers who are really expensive doing, you know, code 
like Java Bean or whatever to get these different vendor products connected so that they can work and get to target applications. Now, most of these things outside the box can connect to other products. And quite frankly, most of them have alliances with other products. So they are required to work together well. And then that you can build your, the right thing to get to the products that you're looking or to the applications you're looking to get to. But it does cost investment dollars up front, which is not fun to shell out. That's no joke. So something that we've talked also loosely about for larger, more well-established organizations that already have a bunch of different security stacks in play or different security tools and protocols in play, the, it's probably very likely if you think, if you agree or disagree one way, it's probably very likely that they may already have the right tools into play. And to your point, need to make them do things better together. And they may already be able to do all that. And so I guess from an investment perspective, some of these companies may have already made the investments. They just need to do the right things to put them into play. Yeah. So actually there is an organization that I cannot name, but it makes me laugh so hard. So I asked someone, they were asking me, how would you create a zero trust architecture for this organization? So I said, send me all of the applications that they own, They're the vendor products that are cyber-based. So they sent them all to me. They had so many, I mean, they're a very large organization, but they had so many buys throughout the organization that I actually built. I like, I said, okay, here's one zero trust architecture that they can do. Here's a second one. And here's you know, I'll do a bonus one on a third one. And they all had different products. I didn't use the same product twice. So to your point, you're absolutely right. You can likely, you likely have some of the pieces already. You might have to swap up, swap out some other things, but for the most part, yeah. I mean, I, I, I have also seen other organizations and by the way, remember I'm in commercial and federal space. I've seen a lot. I've seen other organizations say, well, we just bought this one product and then their consultant said, okay, cool. Like we need to implement it. Can you hold off? And then some other vendor comes in and sells them another product. Oh, we just bought this other product too. So then this, the company kept buying products. And I said to the, I said to their consultant, I was like, you need to tell them to stop buying things because it's really going to make your life miserable when you have to sit down and figure out how to connect all these things together that they just bought. Cause they probably have a couple pieces they don't really need. It's like an Ikea desk. When you come back, you always end up with extra pieces. So that's no joke. No, that's pretty funny. And that's good. It's, and it's very true. Having worked as a consultant myself in some places, I've come into a place that just basic SAML tooling and account management 101, they literally had three different companies mm -hmm. that provided it, but they bought one because they wanted one that did MFA. They bought another because it had the good LDAP connectivity. And then the third one, I still don't know to this day how it got in there. It was just there and they weren't it using it. It was a good salesman. It was a good It was. I think that's exactly what it was. But, you know, <laughs> it's true. You know, they... That's a whole nother long-winded conversation on my part about requirements mapping and making sure you actually know what it is you're trying to buy before you buy. And many orgs don't do that. But on the flip side with zero trust, it might be to your benefit because maybe you don't have to go out and look at new technologies potentially depending on how many things you've got floating around in the ether. That's funny. On that note though, when we think about the technology growth, so you mentioned it early on in this conversation that the chances are everybody's got zero trust or zero something or trust something slapped onto it somewhere. And I think it's good to iterate on the fact that it's not a one product fits all. It is a multi-product 
requirement to do this the right way, no matter what you have and don't have already. On that note, from a vendor marketing perspective, we talked about those LDAP, Samuel, off people already kind of pushing things. Have you seen as a legal perspective, as a recovering lawyer, aside from the federal government, have you seen a lot of nomenclature coming out from businesses agreements and stuff like that to stipulate the legal requirements to maintain zero trust in a private sector kind of world? Or have they started looking at the weights of what that could be for the variations of everything from insurance to compliance to all this other weird stuff that you lawyers and recovering lawyers yeah. like to talk to? <laughs> so uh, that's actually interesting. Right. The answer is no. I would say I haven't seen a lot and I think I have seen so, but I think it depends on where the company is. So I have seen some companies who around the time of the pandemic, really, they actually bought into technology uh, that wasn't 100% as mature as it is today. Like it wasn't even, and some of them were not even close. I think that they knew that that those companies they saw the roadmap they knew where they were going i think that what i see instead of zero trust in in and things like that what i see more from the commercial side is actually mitigating the risk by pushing the risk to somebody else to a third party so you see a lot of you see a lot of cloud-based vendors coming like getting more into uh commercial you also see a lot of SOC as a service coming out, which I think is great because there are smaller companies that just, they don't have the ability to run a SOC. And quite frankly, like having all those skilled analysts, like it, it's better to have them in a shared service because then they actually see attacks in a greater, greater birth within industry type as opposed to only that one company. So I think that, I think I see that more than I see like a focus on zero trust. I think I, the problem is like I'm an identity person. And so I go out to all the identity things and all I talk about is identity and access management all day, every day. So I feel like all of my friends who work at, in these industries, they all absolutely have that idea and that mindset, but that doesn't mean the rest of the company does. It's just my friends are geeky like I am. You're in the right neck of the woods by yeah. default. So. Yeah, well, at least you got something good to talk with each other about. I miss my Intel analyst discussion. You know, I got to go back and sneak on the base every once in a while and see if they'll let me into a skiff to have some cleared conversations. They don't like it when you do that, by the way. No, they uh, don't. <laughs> if anybody's listening from App Cyber, I haven't done that in a very long time. No, that being said, yeah, that, that's fun though. That's fair clue. Fair play. I think the uh, it is a weird trend looking at all the MSSPs, MDDR or MDRs, MSPs as well without the extra S for whatever reason. Sock out of box, sock out of the box, sock as a service. All these other wonderful marketing terms, and that's something I personally haven't seen where where those groups have blatantly talked about zero trust in respect to how they're helping you deploy those security stacks. At least not blatantly. It's usually some weird third party consultancy slash product vendor doing it still and then they're like oh we'll tie into pick a service provider mssp for you it's a weird trend once again whole nother conversation we could have around the benefits of sock as a service piece as well I agree i think that's a wonderful thing to do whether you're getting started or not it's a good expansion of your footprint and capabilities yeah. obviously a lot of what we do today is shaped around compliance and regulations and that's really where you see people are forced to start to adopt certain aspects and kind of cover certain elements. 
Obviously, we also have environmental changes like COVID impacted things. So now people are more remote. But I'm curious from your legal background, what has been or maybe even foresight, uh, where do you see the most change coming from like a legislation impact on zero trust adoption and in particular, I am? The only thing legislatively that I see coming down the pike is a privacy. There's a privacy legislation that's, I don't know, if I talk to my friends, who are big on privacy, they say it's absolutely going to happen. I don't believe that. But I mean, if it does, it'd be great. But I think that would make a massive impact with identity and access management because so I spoke at RSA this past week, gave me my going away parting gift was COVID. Luckily, it wasn't really that bad. But I mean, I knew what I was getting myself into. It was a lot of fun. And what I actually ended up doing is I spoke with a friend of mine, Jamie Danker, who's like this massive privacy expert. And we went and we talked about baking privacy into identity and access mm-hmm. management. Because when you're doing any kind of IAM or even zero trust integration, what you're going to end up doing is you're going to end up impacting someone's privacy, right? Because of all of the information that you're collecting to be able to get to the contextual authentication. So you're getting all this really good information where that person is, you know, all of the other fun things like, you know, fingerprints perhaps, but really that stays on the local device, but in theory and some other things, usually you'll probably get their mobile number if you need an extra factor, blah, blah, blah. So you get all of this information and then what do you do with it? Well, hopefully you don't do anything with it and you just use it for <laughs> authentication purposes, but some companies have decided to use it for marketing purposes and that's not good. So I think that's a, that's kind of a really big important piece because as you're doing this, you're going to get even companies that are implementing zero trust, not just with their employees, but also for on the SIAM side as well, they start to get a lot of really rich information that they hopefully do not use against the consumer to be able to try to target market marketing, but they could if they don't adhere to whatever privacy standard that they had given the consumer. As a side note, I actually, I have a friend who's a regulator, so because they're an attorney and they called me up one day and they said, how would you do this? We've got these privacy issues. Like, how would you go and make sure that they do the things that they say they're going to do if they get popped on privacy? And I was like, oh, that's simple. I would make sure I would make them bake it into an IAM solution. And I started talking <laughs> through how it would work. I was like, don't let them collect information on forms and then put it on a database. It's got to stay in the IDP and silly things like that. So I think that to me, when it comes to IAM and legal stuff, it's the privacy piece that comes is the implement is part of it. Like it's not the, so yeah, you have regulatory things uh, like HIPAA, all that other fun stuff. But on those, you have NIST standards like 853 that kind of come into play. I think what the other piece of this is the fact that I have this attorney background and I have this attorney brain because I did so well in civil procedure. I now understand, like I can get policies, I can do policies pretty well, like either written policies for users to see or policies into engines to create risk scores. Because I understand it's kind of an if then kind Mm -hmm. of thing that you write out, which I guess if you're a coder, you can do too, because it's very similar in nature. I'm not a coder though, so I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I think there was 
I mean, you might have called out something that I know I've run into in particular. I won't name the social platform, but it's it's oh, one I know of which the one it it's the big one. So they, yeah, I, know what they I do. think they got they in trouble, or at least <laughs> yeah, it's definitely no. I think they got in trouble for using I don't know if it was SMS or two factor numbers, yep. and they were using that for marketing purposes. So I think like there are very real examples of that being out in the wild, and people are very has definitely been exposed to a situation to that extent. So I can definitely yeah. understand that. And it's a shame because if you hadn't, if you, so there are like modern IDPs. So you have to get away from what are, I can't think of the word modern auth, basic auth, I think is the, is how you call certain types of auth from certain companies that we shall not name, but modern auth. So IDPs that do modern auth, in many cases, they also have a forms feature attached to their, to, to it, to be able to collect information from the user. And that forms feature, it gets fed into the IDP. Now, of course, if someone decides to come in and pull out all of the information from the IDP, then they could use all of that person's information. But to me, it's a very simple way to not like a company can easily make sure that that information that they collect from a user doesn't get used for marketing purposes. But I will say, <laughs> I'm probably going to scare everybody. So for very large companies that have been collecting user data for years and years, the whole, the European view of being able to disappear yourself, I forget, erase your GDPR. Yeah. GDPR, but what do they call it? It's not erase the, yourself. The right to forget. Forget. Or be yeah. Yeah. The right to forget. You don't, you can't, they can't forget you. It's not a possibility because they don't know where all your data is. It's very scary. Yeah. That, <laughs> unfortunately, that ties into another social platform that just recently got into some headlines where they don't really know how and where they're storing all the data and all that good stuff. I guess we'll just keep using social media as our guinea pig for all the things that can go wrong and constantly go wrong for identity access management and zero trust in particular. Yeah. I mean, that's what we're going to do. <laughs> they do a good job of protecting that data so that other people can't get to it. Yeah, they put it behind a really large paywall. Uh, they do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to look at my phone. It's not going to work anymore here in about five minutes. But no, so that's a fun factor in the sense, you know, that there is a lot of PII potentially out there, which brings us back kind of that, that doc control aspects of being able to set to your thing scores and mechanisms and thresholds around what it means to do the access of whatever, not, you know, not just the laptop, but a PDF to an email to whatever, and what your thresholds of exposure are, depending on you getting it wrong. I think on that note, one of the, uh, one of the pieces from my past that I used to look at was in the retail space a little bit. And so just like financial services, banks have to worry about your fingerprints, your eye, eyeballs now and everything else on your phone, like Starbucks and everybody else. But in the retail space as well, you know, there's everything from the advertising channels that you have to monitor from those third-party CDNs to, and how those were collecting, because back in 2010 or 11 or 12, whenever it was, exploit kits galore, taking advantage of iframe and Adobe Flash and all that fun stuff and stuff like that's still here. But then you have this leakage in your phone and other stuff to get access to the data. And a lot of it really does boil down to if you had the right policy in play, when you built the app, you would have already looked at it and that leaky data wouldn't exist at the end of the day. 
not because there's an actual exploit in your app or on your browser most of the time. It's just because you didn't take it into account when you built it, and now it's leaking out into all the network traffic or through third-party cookie settings and all this other fun stuff. Yeah. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally agree with that. I think the other thing, because you're talking about data um, and protecting data, the one thing, you know, the CISA pillars, right? I like to say that they're actually, they're not, it's a kind of a leaning house instead of a stable house because that you've got the identity pillar which is pretty strong if an organization we all the tools are out there to build that strong pillar but data it's not i feel you know if you have identity higher than a hundred percent data is like pretty low and it's not because there's not enough data out there there's too much but it's because we actually and this is another thing i like to harp on too we do, like the vendors that it's two things one is there's not enough vendor products out there that are competitive enough to be able to really see and if you want tag the data or at least classify the data at the data object level. The yeah. second issue that we have is that you have a lot of SaaS solutions that has data inside it and they don't always like to think of that data as that organization. Sometimes they like to think of it as their own. And so they don't like outside tools coming in and being able to manage that data in a way that would allow for better cyber hygiene. And so when that occurs, then it, which we have all the time, I can name so many vendors where I just can't get to the data. I can't even get to the group level within that vendor product. So because of that, we actually have, we can't reach that optimal ABAC solution that we would like to get to the data level. We, I, when I think, uh, when people say ABAC, I really think of it back to the application layer because I just don't see us doing it right now, anytime soon. Part of it is vendors need to play better with each other, which is not always an easy thing to do. But then the other thing is we need more advancements in how to review the data and classify the data really quickly. And luckily we have AI, ML, and all of those other fun buzzwords to be able to help to get there. I do know a couple of companies that are starting to get there that are going, but they're kind of going around the applications and they're going straight into the SQL databases to be able to review yeah. that data and classify that data. But if it's in a SaaS solution, it's not as easy to do. So that's interesting because you just reminded me of something from the healthcare industry that I totally forgot about. But there, <laughs> there are companies out there for legal reasons, exclusively almost, that do that document discovery on, on your networks and databases, right? There are companies solely built around scraping every single thing you give them access to and categorizing it into whatever. I see these in the healthcare industry now more than ever, but they, I think they started off more as a post-breach awareness I, I, they're probably already there for the lawyers before this, but this is the mechanism I saw them applying to was post breach to figure out, you know, hey, we said server A, B, and C is what's compromised. Well, server A is 18 petabytes. We need yes. you to classify the info. So on that, that vein, taking something as simple as a service provider like that who does data classification for you to start from scratch, I think that's actually an interesting idea. And that's not something that we've talked about yet. And we really haven't talked about data classification and handling that data either as part of the trust model as well. So it's another Because it's hard. Yes. it's hard. Yeah. It Why is. would you talk about something that's too hard? Like when you get to, if you have people who come up to you and say, I don't know how to accomplish zero trust. You say, well, you can get all the way up to here. Then past there, just nah, we'll deal with it later. <laughs> we'll wait for the technology to catch up, hopefully a little bit more. Yeah. But no, I mean, I do think that's a great point though, is 
you can do application level security. You can secure the box a little bit. You can secure the devices. We can build zero trust around what it means for my laptop to talk to servers, ABC or other laptops in the network. And we all should be working towards that. But at the same vein, bring it back down the layer to the actual data residing on your various servers and boxes and things like that. That That's, yeah, I think that's going to be a fun one. I like the idea. I'm on board with the idea, especially with some things I'm working on today. But yeah, that's going to be a unique market space, I think, extending zero trust to the documents and to the actual data repo itself beyond that and putting some kind of secure wrapper, if not around each individual file, but maybe around the folder structure, the file structure at the top level, as much as you have the application managing it. Yeah. I mean, I know that those are all possibilities because I know that happens in some types of spaces, but it's just not, I think that in my opinion, it's not the easiest to do. You definitely have to have really smart people who have done it before, who at least see it currently and can replicate it. And there's just not enough people who know how to do that because they're not granted access to that types of sophistication. Yeah, we definitely do it in the classified world. I think pretty regularly, I send you something DSSCI, blah, 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 and you've only got blah instead of the blah, blah, blah. Well, I'm safe. I may get a little hand slap for sending it to you in general, but at least you can't open it. But I think that's my last little nugget that I like thinking about here. We we talk about the government policies and procedures, and I like to always kind of get to take personally on having come from the government and the military background. We see the government tend to set trends. I think the trend from the government doing something in cybersecurity to the private sector picking it up has gone from decades to years. And now I think we're starting to see a slight shift with certain things and the private sector are starting to outpace the government side. But they, they have their zero trust standard in the government side. We have been doing document level security type things in the government side for a while. There's now a couple of companies trying to do that here in the private sector, but nobody's made it a standard yet for that particular element. So all that to say on, in a note, you know, do you think that courtesy of the government propping this up and mandating this internally, that this is going to accelerate our zero trust curve here in the private sector in some yes. method way? Absolutely. Yeah. So I actually think in this case, I think that, so here's, I like, this is only my opinion, Christine Owen's opinion. It's my crystal ball that I have in front of me. I think that what the federal government's going to end up doing again just my opinion i think they're going to take this mandate they're going to start slowly expanding it so it's going to start first with critical infrastructure finance energy you know things like that then it's going to then they're going to say well we have probably at this point a good probably 20 35% of us companies would fall under the requirement of zero trust how do we get them further and then they'll start including it in healthcare, other highly regulated, highly regulated industries that have to work back with with the federal government. So anyone who has to touch the federal government for whatever way. So most healthcare companies touch the federal government through Medicare, Medicaid, financial industry through Treasury, things like of that nature. At that point, you're going to get at least 75 percent. And then if you also add on the vendors who would have to do it as well. So then you're just going to have that last 25% that's like mom and pop shops, maybe like that just don't fall under that mandate. But at that point, for them to do business with the bigs, they'll have to do it as well. So I do actually think, I don't think this is going to happen tomorrow. I think that the, I think that the, the federal government needs an agency to get it done and succeed at some level of the agency. I mean, agencies are can be massive or can be teeny tiny. So they need 
a part of an agency to be able to be their shining star to say, this works really well. If you go into the finance field, finance sector, they actually basically implemented zero trust, but they don't call it zero trust, but they have really good, very similar methodologies. For example, as a general user, as a consumer, when you go into your bank account, it's so weird because most of the time you can just go in using username, password. And that's what I get most of the time. I get general users saying to me, well, I shouldn't have to do anything beyond username, password, because that's all I have to do to get in my bank account. And that's really important. <laughs> and I say, yeah, but do you know what other things that are behind that username, password that they've actually done to your computer? Do you, you know, you've got a cookie, you've got all these, other, they're looking at your IP address, they're looking at... Yeah, there's a risk score behind you and they can lock your computer down if they or your account if they feel like they need to. But they're not they people don't see that the behind the scenes there. So I think that's where we're going. I also see a lot of large companies who and I mean, again, they're very large companies, Fortune 500s or above that see the value in having a strong identity and access management solution and layering on top of that to get to that zero trust posture because they recognize that the bad guys are coming for them too because they come for them in ransomware in forms of ransomware so the more ransom u.s companies start paying out that's what's going to be a problem and now i realize your question on zero trust and legal documents so you know what i've seen i don't see zero trust yet but i do see requirements for insurance to get cybersecurity insurance, I see the requirement to get to have MFA on all of your users. So that's absolutely like the number one baseline that insurance companies are requiring for private industry right now. If you happen to get cybersecurity insurance. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was, thank you. That was a good rollback to that one. <laughs> I'm like, oh, uh, good, good round back to that. Yeah. No, no, that's interesting. The, uh, I know it, it'll be fun to see where it goes. And then one last quick legal question around, have you played in the FedRAMP CMMC space at all, particularly? So that I was... work with, <laughs> I, I don't think you can play. I feel like it's a very painful space. No. I, so I have so many thoughts and feelings personally on FedRAMP, but I will say I have, I do use a lot of vendors that are FedRAMPed both moderate and high, and some of them are also higher, so ITL4 and above. So the answer is yes. Is there a question beyond that? There was a question behind <laughs> that. So out of curiosity, I've only played in the FedRAMP space a little bit here and there. And most of, as you go through the echelons, by the time you get to the top, you, you kind of indirectly have not like true zero trust, but you've done some things architecturally in your DevSecOps world that are pretty dead burn close to it, but it's not labeled. It's not labeled as doing this. And even then there's still some elements that could get a lot better from a zero trust perspective, even at high. And so I guess out of curiosity with your crystal ball, do you see kind of conceptually again, as we build these out in the industry, do we see an update to FedRAMP and or CMC in our near future, probably to stipulate a lot of that for us? Oh, so there is a requirement to update FedRAMP. So yes, there is a requirement and it's either, it's either the executive order M2209, but one of them does actually, I think it's the executive order because it calls out the cloud and it says, yes. How long is that going to take? A long time. <laughs> so personally, the one thing that I would love to see from FedRAMP is I would love to see audits like true. I would love them to, to use third parties to go out and audit the vendors themselves, as opposed to have right now, and by audit, I mean pin test and not yeah. just do the auditing of the paper exercise. 
that I really, that's my number one concern. I think, I think that I, let me stipulate this. I think that FedRAMP vendors do a great job. And especially once you get to high, I, they do a fantastic job to the point that I'm working with a vendor who is almost, they're almost certified as high, but they are in the high environment. And so they're doing, you know, a lot of things there and they're trying to get a certain widget to work in their high environment. And they can't because the high environment is specifically created to make it hard for that widget to work. And so I think it, so to me, that means that they implemented it properly. So it's wonderful. And then I say, oh, I'm really sorry, hurry up and make it though. But for things like that, where you want to keep, you, you want certain types of, of feature parity between, you know, just regular commercial all the way up to high. You definitely need more pen testers for that moderate and high to make sure that when that feature was created, that it doesn't bring it back down to a commercial setting. So I think that's really important. Hopefully that's something that they're going to look into. I honestly don't know. I don't, I don't talk to them much. The reason why I say that it's so painful is because if you are on either any of the sides of it, if you're a vendor there, the agency that sponsors also gets involved and then Federer gets involved. And then they also tend to have consultants come in as well. So there's a lot of people who are involved to get that fed ramp done. And it's a really painful process. It costs companies a lot of money, like a lot. And it also takes a lot of time. It generally takes them somewhere between one to two years to get a fed ramp certificate. And even if they're already in moderate, it takes them quite a lot of time just to get into high. It's not like you say, okay, well, I just recreated everything I did here. I added the controls I needed to have, and I went into an already determined to be FedRAMP high cloud to be able to put my stuff in there. I'm good. Now you still have to go through all the steps again. So it takes quite some much, a, a lot of time and effort. And then on the agency side, they have to kind of go through and validate and verify as well. But pen testing, let's add pen testing to FedRAMP. I think that'd be amazing. Yeah, it'd be a fun addition for sure. Yeah, I, I think I, it's important. This is great. So y'all heard it here, FedRAMP's gonna suck more of your time and life out here very soon with zero trust official knowledge. I do you think true. though, like you, I think it's gotta be only a matter of time. And then for us, I think you mentioned it, it might already be called out at least loosely to migrate towards it someday in the actual order. I'm going to go back and personally re actually reread it because I had read it w way before we started this podcast. So it'd be good for me to go back and renew my interest in that one as well to see what it actually says again. Anyway, one last question for me anyways, and I'm probably beating Elliot to this. If you, if from a closing perspective, if you had to start anywhere for private and public sector, and there, we're getting a thematic around this, I think, which is really good. <laughs> if you had to start somewhere day one to look at where to get started with Zero Trust, where would your suggestions be for that? So is it, I can I ask a point of clarification? Is this for sure. what types of vendors would I look at or what would I do within my, within my organization? Yeah. What would you do if someone came to you today and said, Hey, our org's moving towards zero trust, quote unquote, figure out what we need to do that open-ended. All right. So I actually, oh, it's, you went to my talk. So there, <laughs> I actually give, I've done this presentation a couple of times. So uh, honestly, I've already plugged this. Apparently like NIST loves me because I plug their documents so well. NIST 800, 800 207 is the best document to start at. 
So you read this day 100 207 and you go, well, half the time you'll go, this doesn't make sense to me because it's identity and I'm scared of identity, which I don't get it. Cause I think if a dummy like me gets identity, then everyone should get identity, but you read through it, but it actually has specific things to do. And the first thing is to go and figure out all the things you have inside your organization, which not all organizations know. So what applications do you have? Where are they? What kind of data is are in there? So classify that data out to figure out. And it doesn't have to be like at the data object level. Oh, I have an HR system. That's going to have a lot of PII. That might need to be really protected. So go through and figure that out. And then after that, you go over and you say, what tools do I already have in place? Or what tools do I have that I haven't actually, you know, figured out how to use properly? So go through and figure out all the tools you have and then start mapping them together. I have these tools. This will be able to create this part of the architecture. Maybe I need this one extra piece. So for example, you might need to upgrade your firewalls to a next gen firewall because you want a sassy product, right? A lot of your firewall vendor might actually be able to do that for you. If you're one of a couple of vendors, or if you have one of a couple of vendors, so things like that, looking through that. And then I think. What else would I, the last thing I would, well, it would be in the early stages and not the last stage, but one of the, in the early stage, I would also tell everyone what I'm doing and explain why I'm doing it and explain how important it is. And then tell them again and again, because there is no way that you're going to be able to take a current, your current security posture, which the majority of us have a lateral movement security posture. There's no way you're going to change from being able to laterally move within the network to go to a micro segmented network without having massive all the way down to the end user, the application users, and then all the way up to your C-suite. They all have to have buy-in. A great example of this and a great reason that you have to have this is because when you go from a lateral network to a micro segmented network, what you end up doing is you end up excluding the ability to ride the network or use peer to peer networking to be able to do things that is a normal business need remoting into a computer for a help desk. And when you can't do that, boy, do people get upset. So you absolutely need to be able to get into, to, to figure out what it is that you're doing explain how that works. And then you have to build that architecture and then test it and then test it and then test it and break a lot of things and then come back and keep testing it after you fix those breaks. I had, I was helping a client migrate to zero trust and we were in the test phase and one of their stakeholders called and was just yelling at me and they were so furious and they were like, you broke the entire network. How dare you think that this is a good idea? And I was like, tell me how I broke the network. Come on, tell me. This sounds great. So they start telling me how they can't get from point A to point B without having to do some sort of, you know, re-authentication. And I mean, it's not like a step-up authentication. It was just not as easy to move laterally because we micro-segmented. And they were quite upset with me. And I was like, oh, it works. This is awesome. And then they got more mad. But now they love it. They hated it at the time, but they like it more now. So it's good. With that in mind, we absolutely appreciate you being here, being able to share your expertise, your insight, access, and identity in particular are critical aspects to Zero Trust. So 
having conversations like this is just so important for people to understand where to really get started and some of the most complicated aspects of zero trust. Even if organizations are calling zero trust whatever they're doing and it aligns with it, fantastic. I think what we've come to realize has really been a repackaging of anything. Some might call it a philosophy or principles, but at the end of the day, repackaging is a pretty good way to sum it up. But that being said, again, just we really appreciate you being here and being able to share your expertise with us. Yeah, and that is it. It was fun. Last bug anymore. If all else fails, we can just get one of the little white things in her lap. And oh yeah! In front of every server. And oh, he would. As long as it's a mailman or a neighborhood dog, he will definitely guard against it. Unless <laughs> you seem, unless I'm not here, in which case he will happily let you into his house. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Christine, once again, it, it was great. Thank you very much for the conversation. Much yeah. appreciated. Thank you for joining AZT, an independent series. Your hosts have been Elliot Volkman and Neil Dennis. To learn more about Zero Trust, go to adoptingzerotrust.com, subscribe to our newsletter, or join our Slack community. Viewpoints expressed during the show do not reflect the brands, employers, or companies of our hosts, guests, or potential sponsors.